tiny quick reminder note about this season and this episode. We have gathered so much material in our investigative research into MOVE over the last almost four years, so we can never share everything. Our goal is to give you the story and evidence that we have been able to corroborate and then share our analysis so that you can connect the dots for yourself. And then if you want to go off and research further for yourself, we say yes. And if you find something you think we want to know about, please send it to us. My apologies for any cracks in my voice. Winter flu. I'm your host, Beth McNamara, and this is episode six, The Coordinator. It's 1931. The United States is in the midst of the Great Depression. After the devastating crash of the stock market on October 29th, 1929, known as Black Tuesday. And if you're bewildered, panicky at what's happening to you and your country, you aren't alone. One of America's biggest industrialists has openly admitted, I am afraid. More than 25% of the U.S. labor force is unemployed. Prosperity is just around the corner, say the hopeful headlines. But around the corners wind the lengthening bread lines, and a whole new class of citizens appears in American society. The new poor. According to the Library of Congress, quote, the problems of the Great Depression affected virtually every group of Americans. No group was harder hit than African Americans, however. By 1932, approximately half of African Americans were out of work. In some northern cities, whites called for African Americans to be fired from any jobs as long as there were whites out of work. Racial violence again becomes more common, especially in the South. Unquote. Sunday, July 26, 1931. Carlos Ibanez del Campo resigns as president of Chile following three days of rioting by citizens who were preparing to call a general strike in opposition to his rule. A swarm of grasshoppers descends on crops throughout the American heartland, devastating millions of acres across Iowa, Nebraska, and South Dakota. The swarm described as exploding beneath your feet, a rolling wave that forms out in front of you. They hit up against your body and cling against your clothes. It's almost like being immersed in a gigantic living being. The swarm was said to be so thick, it blocked out the sun. Floods in China reached their peak in possibly the deadliest natural disaster yet recorded. A Bible student movement in Ohio adopts the name Jehovah's Witnesses. These events all happen on the 207th day of the calendar year of 1931. July 26. It was a Sunday. According to Wikipedia, notable people born on this day. John Africa, the founder of MOVE, a Philadelphia-based predominantly black organization active from the early 70s to the present, killed in fire in 1985. John Africa does not legally exist. And so their entry about his birthday as notable on July 26, 1931 is inaccurate. The correct entry would be this, July 26, 1931. Vincent Lopez Leaphart is born in Philadelphia. He is the fourth of 11 children born to parents Fred and Lenny May Leaphart. At home, Vincent is called Benny. The Leaphart family resides in the Philadelphia neighborhood known as Mantua, and as a family, regularly attend the Metropolitan Baptist Church. All of the Leaphart children attend public school. Vincent, Benny, is struggling. Fifty years on a move, a completely revised and updated version of the 1996 publication 25 Years on the Move by Dubside and Mike Africa Jr. Remember, Dubside is the move supporter who hung up on me during an interview seemingly to avoid questions about murdered ex-move member John Gilbride. Your name came up. Somebody said there's this guy named Dubside and he's off the radar and people wanted to talk to him, but they've never been able to find him. If you want to talk about August 8th, I'll talk to you. Otherwise, I don't care to talk about anything. Hello? Dubside, did you just hang up? Okay. Mike Africa Jr. is the current public figure of MOVE. His sister is Wit Africa, who has spoken extensively on this podcast. Their great uncle is Vincent Leaphart. Page three of this booklet, title, 
John Africa. Quote, he never got above the third grade level in school. Intellectually, he operated on a different wavelength. He spent much of his time outdoors, in undisturbed forests, open fields, and along riverbanks. Unencumbered by a system education, he noticed unparalleled harmony, immutability, and correctness in the world of nature. Unquote. The read nor write, but his wisdom surpasses any man's walk on the face of this earth. That was the voice of the late Laverne Leaphart Sims, the grandmother of Mike Africa Jr. and Wit, and the younger sister of Vincent Leaphart. This is just one example of MOVE members claiming that Vincent Leaphart could not read or write. MOVE says their belief is that education is systematic and in violation of natural law. And so they have used Vincent's school struggles to justify that education is not needed and detrimental. February 19, 1949, 17-year-old Vincent is arrested. Charges, holdup, point of gun, robbery, larceny of auto. Vincent is a minor, but this remains on his record. 1950, North Korea invades South Korea. Here, the Russian-dominated North Koreans launched a full-scale, well-prepared drive on the capital of the South. The peaceful Southern democracy was taken by surprise by this communist blitzkrieg, culmination of red aims in the Far East that are perfectly clear for all to see. With the backing of communist China, North Korea's aggression towards South Korea could not go unchecked by President Truman. Korea is a small country, thousands of miles away. But at what is happening there is important to every American. An act of aggression such as this creates a very real danger to the security of all free nations. This is a direct challenge to the efforts of free nations to build the kind of world in which men can live in freedom and peace. This challenge has been presented squarely. We must meet it squarely. June 1951, the Universal Military Training and Service Act is passed, requiring U.S. males between the ages of 18 and 26 to register for the draft. September 30th, 1951, Lenny May Leaphart, mother of Vincent and his 10 siblings, dies of pulmonary tuberculosis at the Presbyterian Hospital in Philadelphia. She is just 42 years old. Her 11 children are now left motherless, with the youngest being just seven years old. November 5th, 1952, 22-year-old Vincent Leaphart is drafted into the Army. Okay, we found his DD-214. Bob has obtained a document from Vincent's military records. Which is the discharge form. It's the standard form. It's a standard form. But every field on this form has special codes. Bob deciphers them all into English. He got no special training. He was just an infantry grunt, just a regular soldier. He was in this Company C of the 17th Infantry Regiment, which was also known as the Buffalo Regiment. And at the time, it was integrated racially, which was new for the Army. He was sent to the Korean War Zone. And we know what his unit did because he, we have the name of the unit and we know where it went and we have his medals listed on the document. He got the Korean Service Medal with one bronze service star and the Combat Infantryman badge, which means that Vincent was certainly and fully involved in heavy combat. You can't get that those two medals without having been in combat. It's impossible. Were these medals medals of valor or anything? They were given to everybody in his unit. We don't know any individual actions that he did aside from what his unit did from this document. So he's in heavy combat. Is he ever injured? No, not seriously enough to get written down or miss duty. He was not listed as ever being physically damaged. If he had learned Korean, would that be in this document? What's in the document is that he had a fourth grade education, elementary school only. Okay. There is nothing at all in this document that suggests that he knew anything but how to speak English. In Move uh, Lore, Vincent learned how to speak fluent Korean and established Move 
in Korea before he established MOVE in Philadelphia. Is that possible? From this document, definitely not. On October 21st, 1954, Vincent signs his discharge form, which we, which is this document we have. The signature is neat and legible, and it's actually a pretty cursive signature. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing hasty. There's nothing strange about it. So he could write? He could write at a fourth grade level, according to the Army, and he wrote that signature. And it's the only piece of his handwriting that we have, as far as I know, right? Yes, I believe so. After Vincent is discharged from the Army, he returns to Philadelphia and chooses to continue on with his U.S. military service by serving in the U.S. Army Reserve from 1954 until 1960. The most photos we have ever found of Vincent are from his sister Louise James's 2013 self-published book titled John Africa, Childhood Untold Until Today. Vincent is a sharp dresser. I'm going to describe one photo from 1955. Clean-shaven, short hair, wearing a pressed white dress shirt, a button blazer, and dress shoes. The background is a nicely furnished, wallpapered sitting room, and Vincent is posing at the landing of the stairs, with his hand in the pocket of his dress pants. His expression is serious, no smile. Based on the public census, Vincent's father, Fred, was a wallpaper hanger. 1961, 30-year-old bachelor Vincent becomes the Mr., of Mr. and Mrs. Leaphart on March 11, 1961, when he marries Dorothy Clark, who goes by Dottie. Dottie was someone that Vincent knew from his Mantua neighborhood. She's also the sister of Vincent's sister-in-law, Fanny, married to Vincent's brother, Alfonso, who goes by Fanny. After at least two incidents of physical violence, specifically being struck in the face by Vincent, in June of 1966, Dorothy Leapart files assault and battery charges against her husband, Vincent, resulting in a criminal warrant. Vincent fails to appear in court, and Dorothy sees Vincent for the last time in 1967. Vincent evades the criminal warrant for the next three years, resulting in three contempt of court charges. But in 1970, the DA drops the case for a lack of evidence. Dorothy and Vincent never file for divorce, and they never get divorced. They also never see each other again after 1967. Dorothy Leapart only hears about her husband, Vincent, by reading the newspaper stories about MOVE. Vincent and Dorothy never had any children. Krishna, Krishna. 1968, the Hare Krishnas, alleged to be a cult, set up their first commune in the U.S. January 1969, Richard Nixon is inaugurated as the 37th president of the United States. Vincent moves into Powelton Village, a very progressive neighborhood of anti-war activists, academics, and low-income Black residents. Vincent rents an apartment at 3207 Pearl Street. He's barely making ends meet. He's working as a handyman. Remember, this was mentioned in episode three by Tim Hayes. There was a guy who on trash day would come and take the trash cans out and he would mop the hallways and stuff like that. I didn't know his last name at the time. Who's named Vince? August 1969, Los Angeles. Members of the Manson family cult brutally murder four people, including Hollywood actress Sharon Tate, who was nine months pregnant. Charles Manson had directed his followers to commit the gruesome murders in order to jumpstart a race war he called Helter Skelter that would result in white Americans prevailing over black Americans and installing him, Charles Manson, as leader of the United States. A week later, Woodstock, 1969. Vincent is still living alone in his Palatine Village apartment. He's making furniture and doing custom cabinetry in addition to his handyman jobs. He's friendly, but a bit of a loner. At this time, he gets a new nickname, Vinny the Dogman, because he's always seen with the stray dogs he has taken in and because he is offering his services as a dog walker. April 22nd, 1970, Fairmount Park, Philadelphia, the very first Earth Day considered the birth of the modern environmental movement, leading to Congress passing the Clean Air Act and the Endangered Species Act. May 4th, 1970, the Ohio National Guard opened fires on Kent State students protesting the Vietnam War. Four students are killed, nine are injured. Like Tim Hayes mentioned in episode three, Vince is very curious. 
He likes to get into deep conversations and ask a lot of questions. You ask your question, he would look at right in the eye. He'd be right on you, you know, uncomfortably close sometimes because he's always leaning in. And once he got what he wanted, he would back up. This is how Vince and Donald Glassie's ideological partnership begins. 1972, they begin writing The Book, also known as The Guidelines, with plans to publish it, but then decide they want to make the teachings come to life in a group that they first call the Christian Movement for Life, which then becomes MOVE. And they transform Vincent into John Africa, the coordinator of MOVE, the figurehead of a communal revolutionary family with a back-to-nature, anti-technology, anti-government ideology. The first members are teenage and young adult nieces and nephews of Vincent's, specifically his sister Laverne and his other sister Louise. They also recruit people from Vincent's Mantua neighborhood, including 22-year-old West Catholic High School 11th grade dropout Alberta Wicker. We believe that man's lifestyle is wrong and we're about getting rid of it. Alberta grew up in the same neighborhood as Vincent, but she's 17 years younger and was most familiar with Vincent's younger siblings. Alberta is very bright and strategic, something Vincent needs in his inner circle. Alberta's first significant contribution is that she's a typist in the city's Department of Welfare, so she knows the ins, outs, and workarounds to getting welfare payments. So all MOVE members get on welfare, with those having children able to bring in the most money for Vincent's revolution. Alberta was always very ambitious and knew that proximity to power can result in attained power and privilege within MOVE. So the story inside of MOVE has always gone like this. Young Alberta wanted to be Vincent's mate and allegedly refused to leave Vincent's bedroom on the third floor of Palatine Village, 307-309 North 33rd, until Vincent agreed that she was his mate, the coordinator's wife. So Vincent finally gives in, according to this story. Alberta played her cards perfectly because when she gets out of prison in 1988, she uses this label, this designation, in order to take the throne of MOVE and use the lives lost on May 13th, 1985 to personally enrich herself as the coordinator's wife. John Africa and his followers say that their belief is life and that John Africa is the direct line to their God, Mama Nature. And that is how he coordinates their activities to achieve their goals of returning earth and man to a pre-civilized world so that humans can be back in balance with the natural world. Throughout this whole podcast, and we are now on the 20th episode, not including the teasers, you have heard from former members and supporters of MOVE throughout its 50-year history talk about the teachings and the indoctrination that they say supports their allegations that MOVE is a destructive cult. I'm now going to share audio that we've obtained of MOVE members speaking about John Africa to give you an idea of how strong their belief is. John Africa has taken people from all walks of life and given them solution, have made their lives happy. This is the voice of Janine Smith-Phillips, a.k.a. Janine Africa, the mother of Life Africa, the infant that MOVE alleges was murdered by Philadelphia police in March 1976. This part of MOVE's narrative was featured in the previous episode, The Meaning of Life. This audio recording of Janine was made in the House of Corrections in Philadelphia. All right, before I came to MOVE, I was a nervous wreck. My family wasn't happy. My kids wasn't happy. My marriage wasn't working. But since I've been in MOVE following Jesus of John Africa, I am strong. I am a woman. My kids are happy and harmony. I've got a family. Janine is on trial for murder and could spend the rest of her life in prison. Her two young boys, five-year-old little Phil and one-year-old Uju, are without her. But none of these politicians have done anything for any of these families. Ain't none of these politicians went and tried to help the junkies off the corners. Ain't none of these politicians ever went and tried to help these young girls out so they wouldn't have to get abortions. Ain't none of these politicians ever helped the alcoholics in the streets. It has been John Africa that has been made an example of every MOVE member that he can take a drunk, an alcoholic, and make him cured, make him healthy and strong without drugs, without a psychiatrist, all right? It's John Africa that has taken the drug addicts and cured them of their habit without medication, without more drugs. It has been John Africa that has taken the mathematics, the uh, scientists, 
that went to college and took, took that mentality that was getting them to build more guns, bombs, mislead more kids, and gave them the truth, erased them problems from their mind. It's John Africa that has taken people that was on the road to divorce and gave them marriage. All right, it's John Africa that has taken double Africa, who only had one hip, Doctors told him he wouldn't run and made him so that you see that man run nine miles, all right? Told him he would never uh, be able to walk without a cane. Now, you wouldn't have known it if you seen Double Africa today. It was John Africa that took Sharon Penn with all the doctors before coming in the move told her she was barren and that if she tried to have any kids, she would die in the process. That girl has had a baby since coming in move and during a confrontation while we were under heavy siege had twin boys with the absence of hospitals and doctors only with the teachings of John Africa all right it has been John Africa that has taken people with asthma any kind of sickness you wanted and has cleared them up John Africa stays behind us John Africa makes us safe sure we had suffered hardships and had some of our babies killed but it is in the guise of getting us stronger to stop this system. Janine is repeating what has been told to her by Vincent Leapart, a.k.a. John Africa, that the death of baby life Africa is under the guise of getting her stronger to fight the system, which is John Africa's revolution. John Africa got the solution to all the problems of this lifestyle. This is Janine's legal and move husband, William Phillips, a.k.a. Phil Africa. And just like Janine is making this recording while incarcerated and awaiting trial for the murder of Officer James Ramp. Of this system. And it's destroyed because it's sick. Same way you would you want to stamp out cancer, this system shouldn't be, no, shouldn't be seen no different than cancer. It has to be stopped. It has to be cut out. It has to be totally destroyed. This next clip is from Merle Austin, a.k.a. Merle Africa. It has been said that she was a trusted scribe slash typist for John Africa, especially after Donald Glassy defects. In fact, her title was Minister of Administrative Coordination. Merle never has children in move, and this audio is when she was also being tried for the murder of James Ramp. They're not going to tell you about the power that we got to back the system down. They're not going to tell you about how John Africa's made all of us strong and healthy, how all of us, how all of us gotten gotten better, able to run, able to jump, able to breathe good, eat good, because of our founder, John Africa. Merle Austin will never live outside of a prison. In 1996, while still deeply indoctrinated in John Africa's teachings, Merle dies of cancer of the reproductive system that she refused to seek treatment for. Move refers to Merle's death as suspicious and uses it to support their narrative that there is a never-ending government conspiracy to kill all Move members. Saying just like on August 8th, they had all the same weaponry that they take us down with now. They had it on August 8th, and it didn't do a bit of good. This is Delbert Orr, a.k.a. Delbert Africa, Minister of Defense for MOVE. He is the most known because of the photos showing Philadelphia police brutally beating him, kicking him, stomping him, as he surrenders, ending the deadly August 8th, 1978 confrontation. Each and every one of them cops, when that shooting started, had it in their mind they was going to kill everybody in that house, or if not everybody, at least half of us or something. But I'm talking about they had their mind made up to kill us. But because of the protection of John Africa, because of the strategy laid out by the greatest strategist in the face ever to set face on earth, John Africa, they were unable to do it. They was trying to kill people that day, but they could not do it. And they could not do it because of the power of John Africa. We are on the move. We got a power behind us, as my brother was talking about, the power of life, the, the, the force that moves the universe. It's behind us, and it's pushing us. And we don't, don't hallucinate about it. We see the miracle. We, we dug it happen. We dug bullets coming, coming through my brother Chucky's arm. You understand? We dug thousands of pounds of pressure, water pressure, coming into that basement that was supposed to be sending everybody sprawling, was supposed to smash babies' heads up against concrete, was supposed to knock women who was nine months pregnant into having miscarriages and everything. We dug all that thousand pounds of water pressure just go over over our heads. We dug because of the strategy of John Africa who laid out our positions where we should be in that basement, protect us. And everybody who continues to be wrong, they're going to continue to pay the price and we gonna get strong. Long live John Africa. Keep in mind that the audience for Delbert and all of these MOVE members in prison being recorded is Mumia Abu-Jamal, 
Mumia is their activity given to them by John Africa. They are recruiting Mumia by praising the power of John Africa in their lives while they sit in prison for murder. What I find most interesting in this clip is Delbert saying that John Africa directed where they should be in the basement, meaning that Move knew the police were coming on August 8th. They weren't trying to avoid a confrontation, and in fact were following the strategy of John Africa, which was given to them before August 8th, 1978. This activity ain't no different than any other activity we've had. This is MOVE member Michael Davis, a.k.a. Mike Africa, awaiting trial for the murder of Officer James Ramp. And he is telling Mumia Abu-Jamal that being in prison and being on trial is just an activity. I'm saying it certainly ain't no worse than uh, March 28th when those sadistic-ass cops came out there and uh, beat Janine and Phil's uh, baby bloody until it died when they uh, kicked the baby out of uh, Rhonda, Africa, when it... uh, stopped um, Alberta, Africa, into having a miscarriage. I'm saying, you know, the activity ain't no different. I'm saying, just like when we was coming out here, up here, for all those disorderly conducts and uh, all those little silly-ass charges they used to put on uh, move people, I'm saying, it ain't no different. And just like then, when John Africa was ready for that activity to be terminated, it was terminated. And just like when John Africa is ready for us to roll out of here, we will roll, no no matter how many stick-ups is out there, no, ma- no matter uh, what Green or Malmet or Fence or any of them say, when we are roll, we will move on the move. Mike Africa is telling Mumia that this activity can be ended when John Africa says it's finished. Translation, John Africa will set them free from prison when he says the time is right. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. But that is what they are being told to believe when their freedom is on the line in service to their leader, John Africa. While Mumia was making these recordings with imprisoned MOVE members on trial, their leader, John Africa, a.k.a. Vincent Leapart, was a fugitive, wanted for a federal bomb plot. John Africa and his inner circle were hiding in Rochester, New York, for three years until they were apprehended by authorities. Sue Africa, a.k.a. Rhea, was with John Africa for those three years. And in a recorded interview with a young supporter named Lori Allen in the mid-1990s, Rhea shares the special powers of John Africa that she says she witnessed herself. He went barefoot in the house no matter how cold he was. We didn't have any heat but a pot belly stove. Rhea has just set up her story with John Africa always being barefoot, even in the winter, which definitely paints a hippie and or Christ-like image, right? And um, he had jumped the uh, fences and gone out there and unraveled the dog's chain, which took quite a bit of time to unravel it in the cold, and came back over and I was outside waiting for him and he came back and I happened to look down at his feet and he was bare and he was um, joking because I got kind of fucked up because the um, snow and the ice, he was standing on ice, the ice was melting and there was smoke coming off of the ice. The was out there melting ice with his bare feet and showing absolutely no sign of cold at all. And I got kind of fucked up because it was so fucking cold out there. I mean, I had boots and socks and I was freezing. Sue Africa says that John Africa, Vincent, could melt ice and snow with his bare feet. And he said, well, that's right. You see me? I'm melting the snow. Ain't that good? He's just keeping it light. But later on, the coordinator explained that he has so much energy in his body, so much heat. Energy, you know, makes him. And he has so much energy that... You know, he just didn't get cold like that. Rhea claims that 49-year-old Vincent Leapart just didn't get cold like everyone else because of his energy. Examples like that. We would see the example coordinator work outside because we shoveled. Mm-hmm. This long block that we live on. All the blocks up there are like three and a half blocks long. Mm-hmm. And coordinator, he had a shovel and snow out there for people shoveling sidewalks is something you will still hear move spokespeople talk about today as part of their good neighbor narrative which leads listeners to believe that move was giving back to their community doing it for free the truth is that vincent had move members doing all kinds of manual labor in order to financially support him and his cult. Now, Rhea uses this snow shoveling story and adds to it with Vincent's super strengths. He would work out there all day long. Sometimes we'd be out there like eight, 10 hours. And he would work out there with just a sweatshirt, 
a pair of dungaree boots without any socks and no gloves. No gloves. And if he would touch you with his hand, his hands weren't cold, they were warm. He would go out and run with us or run with the men or do certain exercises. You know, you could drop down, see the coordinator, just do push-ups until you got tired of counting. I mean, you literally just got tired of counting. And I'm not talking about no phony bone above the rounds. I'm talking about hands all the way in, just pumping them out, pumping them out, pumping them out, pumping them out. More impressively, more stronger than the youngest, strongest man in me, which at that time was Frank Hathaway. And we're talking about a man that was up there in years, so to speak, but defied the standard of age. These stories about John Africa were used, are used, to indoctrinate and control members, especially children. John Africa could run faster than anyone and not get tired. He could go outside barefooted in the winter and not be cold. He could do more push-ups than anybody could count. These stories made John Africa their god and justified the physical control, neglect, and abuse inflicted upon the children and other members because they were just teaching them to be strong like John Africa. All these stories were a myth to create the myth of John Africa as more than a man, more than human. He was their God, to be obeyed without question. If John Africa gave one of his followers an order, which is called an activity, the follower did it, even if it was a crime, or put them or their child's life in danger. You understand that our founder, John Africa, is just as vital to life as the sun is. And this is how we see him. He is the wisest man in the face of this earth. Long live John An activity is only given out by the MOVE leader, which was John Africa and then second leader, Alberta Africa. MOVE members cannot give themselves an activity. That's a violation because they would be thinking for themselves, which according to the teachings makes you complicated, systematic, and fucked up. You only listen to and look to the leader for your activity, which can be above ground or underground, meaning you are in public confronting the system, aka the police or the neighbors or the courts, that's above ground. When you're underground, it means you're in the shadows. John Africa is the coordinator and he was in the shadows, out of harm's way, out of the public eye, never at risk of arrest or death. People ask where John Africa is. John Africa is always with move members. He's with us in jail, he's with us in the courtroom, he's with us on the insurance vans, going back and forth to court. Because John Africa is love, John Africa is unity, John Africa is harmony, John Africa is family, he's togetherness. And this is something that no matter where MOVE members go, we're going to have. John Africa is the air we breathe. He's the wisdom that guides us safely through all the different trials of everyday life. John Africa is the... It's the light that shines in the darkness for us. When other people are without direction, we always know where we gotta go. We always know what is safe. We always know what to hold dear to, you know? And John Africa's always with us. So when people ask about John Africa, look at the demonstration that MOVE displays, and you see John Africa. When you feel the sun shine on you, you feel a John Africa. Because John Africa is, in fact, all things that is good. John Africa is all things that is right. John Africa is godly. John Africa is the only human being only person with the label man who is totally a man, totally in touch with his senses, totally in harmony with the way of God, with the laws of God, and God's direction. No longer John The Move 9 trials for the murder of Officer James Ramp that took place between 1978 and 1980 were coordinated by John Africa from afar. He was not in the courtroom. In fact, he was a fugitive, but he was sending messages and directions, activities, to his followers, the defendants, through runners, like new recruit Ramona Johnson, a.k.a. Ramona Africa. I remember uh, the first meeting I went to, this friend of mine named Mel called me at work and asked me did I want to go to this meeting to plan a move demonstration, and... I immediately said, yeah, again, because I guess it was time. That was my first introduction to move. I remember talking to Pam at length, and she was just telling me things about move that I didn't know, confirming other things that I did know. Ramona is talking about Pam Africa, but when she meets Pam, Pam is still Jeanette Knighton or Jeanette Patton and is calling herself a MOVE supporter, but was really an inner circle member close to Vincent. And Ramona 
was Pam slash Jeanette's activity. She was recruiting her. And it was Pam who encouraged me to go over to City Hall whenever I could and sit in on the move hearings that were going on, see for myself exactly what was happening, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I did. I saw her seriously committed. She impressed me. As Mumia said, when I encountered MOVE and the MOVE hearings and MOVE trials, that was a wake-up call for me, an eye-opener, because nothing that I was taught by those professors at Temple University, nothing I read in those textbooks that I was made to read at Temple University, none of that was happening in those courtrooms that I went in personally to see, you know, what was going on. None of it. And I was shocked and shaken. I was like, what? He can't do that. That judge isn't supposed to do that. That prosecutor's not supposed to be doing that. I mean, I was shocked. College student Ramona Johnson stands up in court during the 1978-1979 MOVE trials to protest, a typical MOVE activity and is found in contempt of court and sent to jail for two months, the same jail where female MOVE members charged with the murder of Officer James Ramp are being held. Ramona has never met them before this, only seen them in court. MOVE women just really made an impression on me, and the main impression was the sincerity and genuineness that I saw in them. They weren't no phonies. They truly believed in the teaching of John Africa and uh, were truly committed to doing this work no matter what this system came at them with. We believe that this time in jail seals Ramona's fate and is the key moment in her becoming Ramona Africa. I believe that John Africa and this revolution plucked me out of this system during my last year in college. It sure does seem that Ramona Africa's recruitment via Pam Africa is coordinated by John Africa. Remember, 17-year-old John Gilbride is recruited from Ramona's trial in 1986. I've got another audio clip from Holmesburg Prison. It's from one of the five male MOVE members incarcerated there after August 8th, 1978, when Officer James Ramp is murdered. The exact identity is unknown, but I'm going to include it without identifying who it is, because I think the sentiment expressed is important as we look at what the coordinator is doing, what the coordinator means and move, with all of these young people having their lives on the line. Everything that happened, right, it happened because of the strategy of John Africa, our coordinator. Like, I had to come here solid and like uh, everything that happened with me, everything that happens with everybody in the organization it has to do with the strategy of our coordinator. I'm saying move people ain't locked up, they're free because our minds is free, our way is free. And like uh, what, John, what John Africa teaches us is that so long as, as you believe in the dictates of God, the dictates of what's right, the dictates of life, can nothing harm you, can nothing stop you. And that's why they're being stopped and we're moving stronger. Thursday, May 8th, 1980. Opting for a bench trial, not a jury trial, the verdict for the MOVE 9 members charged with the murder of Officer James Ramp is in the hands of Judge Malmud. At this point, all nine MOVE members, five men and four women, have been incarcerated for one year and nine months exactly. They chose to represent themselves with mandated backup counsel and following the strategy of John Africa, conducted themselves in court with outbursts and other contempt of court behavior, which made the trials drag on and on and on. Their trials at that time were the longest and costliest ever in Philadelphia criminal court. For the last 44 years, all of the Move 9 have been referred to just like that, as a group, instead of as individuals. So I'm going to list them to you using their legal names and ages, just so you have an understanding at what was at stake On May 8th, 1980, Debbie Sims, 24 and the mother of two, three and a half year old Witt and her brother, one and a half year old Mike Jr. The father of these children, Mike Davis, 
age 25. Merle Austin, age 29, no children. Janet Holloway, age 29, mother of two. And Delbert Orr, the father of her two children, age 34. Janine Smith, age 24, mother of three sons, two of which are living. Life Africa dies in 1976, with Move accusing the cops of murder. William Phillips, father of Janine's children, age 29. Edward Goodman, age 29, father of five children. Charles Sims, the younger brother of Debbie, he is only 20. The future of the lives of these nine young adults, and by extension, of course, their children and their families, is in the hands of a judge who must decide if they are guilty of taking a life. The life of James Ramp, a veteran of the U.S. Marines, a decorated police officer, a husband, and a father. Judge Malmed approaches the bench. He has a judgment. Guilty. Philadelphia Inquirer May 9th reports that none of the defendants seem surprised at the verdict, and they go on to quote what MOVE members say directly to Judge Malmed. Edward Goodman warned Malmed, You'll pay for this. Long live MOVE. Long live John Africa. Long live revolution. You had no intention of setting this family free, you racist maniac. 20-year-old Charles Sims, a.k.a. Chuck Africa. Hey, Malmed, screamed William Phillips. You're nothing but a disposable trash bag for the system. Laverne Leapart Sims, sister of Vincent, a.k.a. John Africa, and mother of two of the convicted MOVE members, Debbie and Chuck. You all cannot stop the MOVE organization, she screamed. You can't stop the power, and you know it. Every one of you stinks, and you know it. All nine MOVE members, between the ages of 20 and 34, are sentenced to 30 to 100 years each. This is a life sentence. 49-year-old John Africa, Vincent Leapart, is not in the courtroom or even in Philadelphia. He's a fugitive wanted by federal authorities on bomb-making charges. But John Africa is still coordinating his followers, the ones with him while he's a fugitive, the ones not with him in Philadelphia and in Virginia, and the ones in prison via a very sophisticated communication system of letters, phone calls, and cellmate strategies to make sure everyone is doing their move work, which means doing their assigned activity and being loyal. We have read pages and pages of internal move communications with no punctuation, all caps, that goes on and on, praising John Africa, and including messaging that alternates between love bombing and threats, confusing, full of cliches and circle talk, making comprehension difficult for the reader, but especially for the prison censors, which is the plan. It is dizzying for us non-move cult brains to read, so I can only imagine what it was like for incarcerated move members who are separated from the outside world. If they wanted to leave move, there is no way out. May 13th, 1981, John Africa the Fugitive is apprehended and taken into custody in Rochester, New York for federal bomb-making charges. Also taken into custody for the same warrants is Alfonso Robbins, AKA Mo Africa. Sue Africa and Alberta Africa who were with John Africa this entire time and had jumped bail on charges stemming from guns on the porch in May 1977, are also put in handcuffs and then extradited back to Philadelphia. Two months later, the federal trial begins. Vincent and Alfonso, in typical MOVE fashion, opt to represent themselves and use MOVE law and belief as their defense strategy. It is John Africa versus the system, and John Africa is there in person to coordinate his strategy with his followers and potential new recruits as his audience. The Move 9 trials were constant disruptions and delays, which is why it went on for 19 months. Vincent and Alfonso don't disrupt the court in any way, which means no contempt charges or delays. And they are regularly seeking the advice of their two appointed backup counsel attorneys. Throughout the 10-day trial, Move members who had received 30 to 100 year life sentences are called as defense witnesses and testified to the amazing and supernatural powers of John Africa that healed them, gave them strength. Long live John Africa! And about the righteousness of the Move organization. On the move! The Move organization! The courtroom was essentially a stage in order to praise and worship their God, their leader. Vincent Leapart. On the final day, John Africa himself gives their closing argument. It is very personal and calm and reportedly very emotional, as it is reported that John Africa breaks down crying 
as he pleads his case to the 12 jurors that he is just a black man trying to live close to nature. The jury returns a verdict of not guilty. Lee Part was asked how he felt when the verdict was read. Nothing. I was asleep. Nothing. I was asleep. I'm going to play Vincent saying that again. Lee Part was asked how he felt when the verdict was read. Nothing. I was asleep. To this day, Move loves to share this Vincent comment as he's leaving court about being asleep during his trial as evidence of John Africa's power to control his destiny and that the system is never a factor or an obstacle when it comes to his power or the power of Move. Vincent Leapard is cheered and embraced by his loyal disciples as he leaves the courthouse. Move sympathizers are celebrating the acquittal of their leader, Vincent Leapard, also known as John Africa. 50-year-old Vincent has shoulder-length dreadlocks, not full, kind of thin, and a full beard, both of which are pretty gray. He's wearing dark aviator sunglasses, a navy-colored, very worn crew-neck sweatshirt, and jeans. He's carrying a cardboard produce box filled with fruit and vegetables. It's like Moves' version of a victory fruit basket, and also a public display of their purported back-to-nature beliefs and lifestyle. They knew the press was going to be there, and Move has always known how to use the press to their advantage. Vincent poses for newspaper photographers and cameras, embraced by his young and attractive female followers, 34-year-old Jeanette Knighton, who will later be known as Pam Africa, and newly recruited Move member, 22-year-old Teresa Brooks, who in less than four years will tragically lose her life on May 13th. 1985. This scene of local press and moved disciples gives the appearance that Vincent Leapard is a celebrity, a rock star, and Vincent is not shying away or running away from it. He is taking his time getting to the car and driver awaiting him at the curb. What are your plans in terms of staying in Philadelphia in terms of trying to uh, continue the move cult? It's not a cult. It's an organization. Here's that audio again. What are your plans in terms of staying in Philadelphia in terms of trying to uh, continue the move cult? It's not a cult. It's an organization. Vincent Lee Part, the great John Africa, has the press vying for his attention. This is his moment to put out information about MOVE, to share his brilliant teachings and original solutions to what they say is the goddamn system that needs to be overthrown and replaced by John Africa's brilliant ideas. And all Vincent can muster is... It's not a cult. It's an organization. It's not a cult, it's an organization. 50 years of endless move propaganda about how special they are as a group and organization because their leader is like a god, and then you see or hear this? I don't know about you, but even for me, who never bought into the John Africa of it all, I was still kind of let down seeing this tiny video clip and hearing Vincent's voice, which in and of itself is basic. So it's no wonder that this was the only and last time Vincent spoke in public. Move-sanctioned media projects that have been produced never include this clip because it does not support the Move propaganda. It pulls down the velvet curtain to reveal that the wizard is just a balding middle-aged man whose only real skill is insidious manipulation of others for his own benefit. While on trial, Vincent Leapart spent less than three months incarcerated before being acquitted, while his loyal disciples, who he gave the activity to commit crimes and then go to prison for Move's revolution, It was their work they must do in service to him. Their total number of years of incarceration exceeds 350 years, with two members dying in prison for cancers that could have been treated, and then two members dying shortly after being paroled for cancers that could have been treated earlier. Vincent used his followers as tools and objects of abuse with no intention of changing the world for the better, protecting the environment or protecting life. He created chaos for his own amusement and kicks and sat back while he made his followers commit crimes and praise his name like he was a god. Lonely John Africa. Lonely John Africa. From afar, from the shadows and from the grave, Vincent Leapart continued to have control over his members and dozens of children who never knew him but were ordered to worship him, love him like their God, and fear him. Lonely 
Even though generations of children born into MOVE have now defected, either quietly or very publicly on this podcast, the organization continues on with first-generation members Ramona Johnson, Eddie Goodman, Janine Phillips, Janet Holloway, Carlos Perez, and Sue Levino, who continue to be loyal to the spirit of Vincent Leaphart under the leadership of Alberta Wicker. The move is still here, still alive, still fighting for life. Long live John Africa. Long live John John Africa. Africa forever. The coordinator, according to Move, is an omnipotent, all-powerful, immortal being that the followers have worshipped for 50 years. The reality? Vincent Leapart was just a man, made into a myth that was used to control their minds and bodies as part of a masterful manipulation that resulted in deception, destruction, and death. It's not a cult. It's an organization. The coordinator will always be the coordinator, even in death. And Alberta will always be the coordinator's wife. But now her power is being challenged by a new leader, Vincent Leapart's grand-nephew, 45-year-old Michael Davis, a.k.a. Mike Africa Jr. I said on the moon! Long live revolution! Long live John Africa! Mike grew up in Move by the name Puga, and almost every single biological family member of his was either in Move or connected to Move under Vincent Leapart. But it was Mike who learned the tricks of the cult trade from leader Alberta Africa, and public speaking from Move's Minister of Confrontation, Pam Africa. It is important for us to continue the fight, continue the movement. It took a lot of years of work and dedication, but we have seen success. Mike Africa Jr. has the ambition, charisma, and training to take the Move cult into the digital age, utilizing social media, academia, and Hollywood to rewrite Move's history in order to make it into an easy-to-sell, profitable, branded movement that will make him into a celebrity. We shall continue to fight the system, and we will fight back until we get justice for all political prisoners. On the move, long live revolution! Michael Davis, the coordinator. Coming up next time on Murder at Ryan's Run. ATF came knocking on my door with some federal people, and they started talking to me and showing me things, and they showed me a letter from a MOVE member that now Vincent was, Leapot was saying that he was God. And I found came to the conclusion that the only way that I could ever really leave MOVE was to testify. For bonus content, updates, and relevant news, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. If you have any information about the 2002 unsolved murder of John Gilbride, allegations of abuse in MOVE, or anything related to the podcast reporting, please be sure to email us at murderatryansrun at gmail.com or message us on social media. We also just love to hear what you think of the episodes or if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions. This episode was reported, written, hosted, and edited by Beth McNamara. Archival research and additional producing by Robert Helms. Thanks for listening. The producers wish to stress that all individuals referenced in this podcast series are presumed innocent unless or until they are proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law in the United States of America.